0: Reading, particularly reading guided by active inquiry and genuine curiosity is a great way to learn. What do you plan to read? I'm Salisa Steele.
1: I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. It's June as we're recording, which means the start of summer. At least it means that where we are in North Carolina in North America.
0: The start of summer brings the end of school and the end of school means many weeks without school for most K through 12 students in the United States. Although there are more year-round schools now, including some in our area.
1: That's true and and part of the reason that there may be more year-round schools is because of summer learning loss. And summer learning loss is the loss of academic skills and knowledge over the course of summer vacation in countries like the United States that have these lengthy breaks.
0: As you might imagine, summer learning loss can get quite political. But for the sake of our conversation today, we simply want to make the point that for some students, SLL, yep, there is an acronym for that, SLL is real and it varies. According to a national study whose results were published in the summer of 2020, more than half of students suffered a learning loss over five consecutive summers, and kids in that group lost an average of 39% of the gains they had made over the school year. That's a 39% loss over summer on average. But if you look at the numbers that make up that average, you see a different story. Some kids lose as much as 90% yikes, of what they learn in a school year over the summer. But other kids don't slide back over the summer, and they don't even just hold steady. In fact, they improve up to 32% of their in-school gains over the summer.
1: Now, of course, our focus at Leading Learning in general and on the Leading Learning Podcast is adult lifelong learners, not K through 12 students. But What's interesting in that data that you shared, Salisa, is that the same span of time, those weeks of summer vacation, can be a learning loss for some and can be a learning gain for others, which leads to the question of what individuals can do to make sure that we wind up with gains, not losses.
0: The short answer is to do something that expands what you know, And reading is a great way to do that.
1: Which is why we're focusing this episode on our 2023 Beach Reads.
0: Well, I'm not sure these are going to actually count as Beach Reads, but we will at least each share three books. And we're going to plan to crack their covers this summer, and we'll share a little bit about why we picked these books and and what we hope to learn from them.
1: Yeah, I think it's sort of doubtful that I'm going to be reading these on the beach, but uh, who knows, we'll see. But definitely summer, and we'll each share a book of fiction, a book of nonfiction, and then a wild card.
0: So let's dig in, and let's start with nonfiction, and I can kick things off for us. I plan to read Beyond Disruption, Innovate and Achieve Growth, without displacing industries, companies, or jobs. And that's by W. Chan Kim and Renee Moborn. And I am really excited about this book. In fact, I think we've already made at least one reference to it in in the podcast um, out earlier this year. But this is a new book by folks whose work we know, whose work we admire, whose work we use. We are big fans of their book, Blue Ocean Strategy. And I'm really interested and in fact compelled by The pitch of this new book, the the concept is that innovation and disruption so often go hand in hand, but they make the argument that innovation doesn't have to be disruptive. Innovation doesn't have to put people out of jobs or organizations out of business. And I really like this idea that innovation can be creative rather than destructive. And I get the sense that part of what they're doing is making an argument for the double bottom line, you know, i.e. innovation that's good for the business that's innovating but also good for society.
1: Yeah, and I think um, this will probably be a theme throughout this this episode. But uh, this is also one I will most likely be uh, be reading <laughs> as well for many of the same reasons. Also, a big fan of Kim and Mobarn and uh, uh, their Blue Ocean strategy work. I think this this feels to me like a a response to. I guess the sort of classic creative destruction idea from economics people like joseph schumpeter and then also uh, in the innovation world people like clayton christensen so i'm uh, eager to see what they do with this
0: right so i'm interested in that just sort of general concept but in terms of what i hope to learn is i also hope to get some practical ways to think about what they are calling non-disruptive creation and i'm thinking that those ideas then maybe you know, may apply to our own work here at Tagoras and Leading Learning and may also help us uh, working with organizations that we help through consulting and, and other services as well.
1: All right. So what I think is probably soon to be yet another classic from uh, Kim and Momoran in the business world. I'm sort of in the business world. My, I, I'm definitely in the business world myself with uh, my nonfiction um, work here. But it gets into kind of culture, communication, a little bit philosophical as well. So, what I am going to read in the nonfiction area is actually well, I'm cheating a little bit because it's a reread, mm. um, and and I will say I am a big fan of, of rereading. I think I've heard I think I've heard people like Stephen King, the famous author, say he will never read a book twice. That you know once you, once you read it, you move on. I, d- I don't agree with that at all. Even even for fiction, I will reread. But I think you know if you want to learn. It's great to go back to a book because, of course, you're going to forget. Uh, no matter you know how good you are about taking notes and everything else, you're going to forget a ton of what you've read. In fact, I find that I often forget <laughs> pretty much 100% of, uh, of, of what I've read. But even if you do Ebbinghaus, remember... Ebbinghaus, uh, right there. There here. you go. Yeah, my, my 90% happens like that. Uh, but um, even if you do remember uh, what you've read before... Anytime you go back to a book, to a movie, to whatever, you're just in a different place. And so it's going to mean something different to you and you're gonna learn something different in the process. So I'm-, I'm
0: That's a long lead up I know to that's whatever you're a long you're lead up. Us. I'm sure
1: everybody's <laughs> really curious about what this is. Um, and the, the book that I have in mind is Humble Inquiry, The Gentle Art of Asking Instead of Telling. And this is a book, from Edgar Schein. And Edgar Schein was a, a professor at MIT in business. I said this was coming out of business. I'm not sure if he was actually in the business department, but he's he's associated with organizational behavior, organizational development, culture. He did a, a lot of work in that throughout a you know, very long distinguished career. And he passed away earlier this year in, in January. And I'd been aware of his work for a long time and had read Humble Inquiry. I want to dig into more of his work than, than I have, because, I mean, he really, he was a major figure in organizational behavior and culture. He's he's one of those types of business thinkers that I, I just don't feel like you get as much of anymore. Particularly, I mentioned Clayton Christensen earlier. I think he was a little bit in this vein, and he passed away recently as well. But these are people who I put in kind of the same campus, like a Peter Drucker, who I think is the the towering figure of the sort of business philosopher. And so, you know, I, I want to read this again, partly in, to honor him. And, and I you know feel like he's got a great body of work that I, I want to explore. But, you know, I also feel like we're in this period in our own culture where there's just an awful lot of telling mm-hmm. going on. You know, when you think about social media, you think about the rise of the influencer um, out there, just a, a lot of people expressing their opinions, telling other people what to do which of course has always been the case, but we have a megaphone like we've never had before in in doing that sort of thing. And so this idea of just being good at at asking, at being good at at listening, and of bringing that element of of humility to the process. I've written here and there about humility. In fact, I think in our last newsletter, I raised humility as an aspect of, of leadership. And I think it's just, you know, People will use that term, but I think it's greatly mm-hmm. underappreciated and undervalued. And what I do remember of this uh, book, and I'll say it's a short one. So you know, anybody who doesn't feel like they can tackle anything huge this this summer, I think I've, I've got it right here, and I can see it's you know, it's barely over a hundred pages. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's definitely within anybody's capabilities to to get through. And it's it, I remember it being a good read, and and just a. A very helpful read, and so I'm hoping to kind of, you know, re uh, reinvigorate my own ability to to ask well and to ask humbly.
0: I think that idea of humility and and being humble, being a humble leader, is interesting. And in then it seems like there's a bit of a, a tactical aspect here, which is one way to go about being humble is through asking and, and making sure that you're doing that uh, effectively. So it uh, sounds very interesting. I think I might, as you said, probably put yours on my list, just as you're putting mine on your list.
1: That's the way it always happens with these, uh, <laughs> with these book lists. But uh, yeah, hopefully by the end of the, the summer, I will have learned to be a, a better asker, a, a more humble asker. And I'd say I'd say too that, you know, this whole, you know, asking with humility, really is about learning I mean mm-hmm. you're, you're listening you really are taking in what somebody else is telling you uh, sharing with you that's just so fundamental to, to being a good learner so hopefully I will be learning to be a better learner as I reread Edgar shines humble inquiry
0: well even just what you shared there not having read shine's work yet um, but it does seem aligned with potentially a beginner's mind in this idea mm-hmm. of you know coming to a, a subject as a learner, with sort of no expectations and just being willing to, to learn um, can be very powerful. You said you sort of cheated by going back to a reread. But one of the things that can be so overwhelming is that there are so many things to read, so many books and options out there. And so for me, I do always like to look at authors and thinkers whose work I already know. And so then you have somebody like you know Kim and Mo that have a new book out. And so I'm going to go check that out. or even rereading in this camp, you know, what is it that you've actually already found useful? And then as you said, you're bringing different experience, different point of view, because you're re- rereading it in a different time. So going back to those, I do know that there are some writers, uh, you know, Kim and Mobarn Barn are, are among them, but I think there are others like Dan Pink, you know, who could pretty much write about anything. And I would pick it up and be curious, just because I know that they approach it in a deliberate, thoughtful, and typically sort of a, a slightly off point of view, I might say, you know, they, they bring a little bit of a different perspective than you're going to get from from anyone else.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I have, I have reread Pink. I have reread Kim and Mo Byrne. And, and like you if something is coming out from them, I will look for it. Another one for me is uh, Yuval Noah Harari, who I hope I'm not butchering his name, but uh, the author of Sapiens and Homo Deus and just very, very interesting thinker. In fact, I reread Sapiens last summer and was just struck again by what an amazing book it is. So folks are getting lots of suggestions from us besides the ones that we're uh,
0: <laughs> actually We're really offering. only <laughs> offering three <Yeah. laughs> each. That's right.
1: As someone who listens to the Leading Learning podcast, you should know about the Leading Learning newsletter, which you can subscribe to at leadinglearning.com/inbox. The newsletter is inbox intelligence for learning businesses and helps you understand the latest technology, marketing, and learning trends and grow your learning business. Best of all, it's a free resource. As a subscriber, you'll get leading links, our monthly curated collection of resources to help you grow the reach, revenue, and impact of your learning business. The Podcast Digest, a monthly summary of podcast episodes released during the previous month, plus periodic announcements highlighting Leading Learning webinars and other educational opportunities designed to benefit learning business professionals. Subscribe for free at leadinglearning.com slash inbox. And if you're already subscribed, point a colleague to leadinglearning.com slash inbox. So we've covered nonfiction. Now let's look at what we're going to read fiction-wise. And I, th- I think I've said it before on the podcast at, at some point. I know I've written it at points that um, in spite of my having come out of a background in literature, I mean, before this whole you know learning business world we're in, I was on the path to be a literature professor. So I read a lot of fiction, but I've gotten to a point in my life where I think I don't sort of automatically appreciate fiction the, the way I used to. And I'll go for months at a time without reading a work of fiction. And when I finally come back and read a good one, I'm immediately like, oh yeah, I understand why it is so important to to read fiction, not just to go for the facts and the history and, and everything else. Uh, fiction is just such a a rich experience that, uh, that can teach you so much and... I forget that, and Mm -hmm. I should not forget that. I need to remember it uh, constantly, and hopefully we will help our listeners remember that uh, during this episode.
0: So what fiction are you going to recommend to our listeners today?
1: Well, this is an area where I'm also a a fan of of rereading, but I'm gonna go for something new on this one, and and one I happened to stumble across. It just just struck me, and uh, I thought I've gotta give this a try is a book called The Guest Lecture by Martin Riker. And I'm, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that last name correct. It's R-I-K-E-R, which I believe is Riker. And, you know, I think I first stumbled across this because somebody had a little blurb about it in something like Inside Higher Education, but I've also seen it uh, talked about in the New York Times. And as you might guess, it's about an academic. Um, and my understanding is the sort of general setup is a woman who's an economist who has been denied tenure at uh, the, the university she's at unfortunately a common academic situation. in the aftermath of that she has to deliver she, I guess she's been already been booked to deliver this this lecture on optimism and John Maynard Keynes, mm-hmm. um, John Maynard Keynes. You know, economists have come up already in the, in this episode. Towering economists, you know, one of the one of the big ones from the early half of the twentieth century, whose influence we still feel greatly. So she's supposed to be talking about him, and she's apparently lying in bed in a hotel room with her husband and child there uh, with her. Who've come along with her. She's awake in the middle of the night and. Uh, doesn't feel prepared at all to give this lecture. She's been dealing with the aftermath of not getting tenure, and you know, having to support a family and all that sort of stuff. And she's trying to memorize the the, the speech, the points of her speech. She's actually using the method of loci, which I've written about before, as a as a memorization method, and is sort of engaging with Keynes as she's like um, imagining the, the the speech and. It just sounded like a really interesting sort of thought experiment and setup, and being somebody who's often awake in the middle of the night and thinking about <laughs> things that probably just resonated with me. And um, I think it's interesting to read the reviews on it because it's one of those books that there are people who give it like, you know, one and two stars because they just <laughs> hate this kind of thing, this sort of setup. And there are people who give it five stars and it's brilliant. And I suspect I'm probably going to be more in the five star range, but uh, we'll see.
0: I do remember reading about that book as well so again i will probably want to steal it from you when you're done with it in terms of the fiction that i'm going to suggest i'm going to go to a classic it's a classic that i've never read though it's david copperfield by charles dickens i've read other dickens but i'm interested in this dickens and this dickens now because i just finished barbara kingsolver's demon copperhead and that was Uh, a co-winner of the 2023 Pulitzer Prize in fiction. And Barbara Kingsolver, I've read her other work. So she sort of falls in that pink and Kim and Moburn camp where, you know, she puts something out there, I want to read it. But she used David Copperfield as sort of the framework for her book, Demon Copperhead, and sort of recast the story, modernized it. It's set in modern day Appalachia, specifically Virginia, so not too far from where we're recording this. And so I'm just very interested to better appreciate what King Solver was doing in her novel, where she's sort of adapting that classic by Dickens. And you know, also say as a bonus, it's really long. So I figure if I uh, dig into this one, it'll it'll keep me um, covered in reading for a lot of the summer. It's over a thousand pages. So you know, even if I didn't pick any other books this summer, that might might cover my summer reading.
1: And once again, we are overlapping significantly here because, uh, you know, it, uh, right now I have just started Demon Copperhead, um, having borrowed your copy of it. <laughs> um, and I'm looking forward to doing that. King Solver, again, great uh, great writer. I know I first became familiar with her. I think you did too through the Poisonwood Bob- Bible years yes. ago, mm-hmm. which uh, again, we're throwing in other recommendations here, <laughs> even with our main ones. And I love her. Is it Animal Vegetable Miracle? Is that yes. the, the name mm-hmm. of the book where she- uh,
0: Nonfiction. She, nonfiction. Guess,
1: yeah. She and her family sort of go off the grid and you know really living from the land for it's a year at least it's uh, a year yeah Yeah, and a very good book um i recommend that one as as well and i will almost certainly read david copperfield too after demon copperhead dickens big big influence i mentioned earlier my my path towards being a literature professor i think it was tale of two cities that probably tipped me in that direction Mm. way back in ninth grade or so Mm.
0: Well, and I'm hoping, I I mean, I feel like Demon Copperhead has a lot to say about sort of the roots of social inequities in the U.S. and kind of how those came to be and how they remain to today. And I have the sense that David Copperfield will also look at some of those social, societal, cultural issues that can create such problems. And, you know, I think that that is a place where sometimes fiction can feel a little bit less, you know, pragmatic and practical, but I also do think that sort of the empathy and just the bigger picture thinking about how things come to be, why they come to be, can be, even if they come from a work of fiction, can be applied to the real world and help us understand what's going on around us.
1: Yeah, I think fiction, nonfiction does this too, but I think more so fiction just gives you this sort of thought space to work, and, and play, and, and learn in.
0: And I will say that the Dickens is essentially a recommendation. We were talking earlier about there's so many books, and so how do you find good ones? Um, it can be going back to authors whose work you already know, either because you read it or you read other works by them. But recommendations are another great way. Obviously, we're making some recommendations for you, dear listener, as we're talking today. But the Dickens was sort of a, an indirect recommendation, right? Barbara Kingsolver is essentially pointing us all back to David Copperfield when she's basing her own novel on that. So I also think that's a, another way to look at recommendations. If you find a book or a thinker or an author that you admire, look at who they read or who they are basing their work on, and that can lead to interesting paths to explore. <laughs> This brings us to our third recommendation each, at least our third main recommendation. And this is the wild card category. And for my wild card, I am picking a collection of poetry called Our Andromeda by Brenda Shaughnessy. And uh, we've talked about recommendations several times already in the podcast. This is a book that was specifically recommended to me by a poet teacher. He was commenting on some of my poems and and recommended Shaughnessy's work as a potential example of how I might achieve something in a poem. I know her work a little bit, but not deeply. I sort of know kind of single poems. And so I'm looking forward to digging in and sort of seeing how she puts a full collection together. What I do know of her work is that it's deeply inventive. And um, I, I thought I might just share... The opening of a poem, it's not from our Andromeda. This is from one of her other books. But this is a poem called, I Have a Time Machine. But unfortunately, it can only travel into the future at a rate of one second per second, which seems slow to the physicists and to the grant committees and even to me. And the poem goes on from there. But I think like you get a sense of just her inventiveness, this idea of a time machine, but it can only go into the future at the rate of one second per, per one second. And so essentially, it's what we're living and it's our life. So she has these wonderful, deeply inventive ways of, of thinking about the world. And so I, I look forward to digging into that collection and, and beginning to kind of deconstruct the poems in the collection and understand a little bit how she put individual poems together and then put them together into this collection.
1: I like it when books have a kind of an interesting setup like that uh, it goes back to what I said saying about the, the guest lecture and that just feeling like an interesting setup to me. Of course, I can all, you know, it can go terribly wrong, uh, but uh, when it goes right, it just uh, uh, is, is inspiring to, to see somebody take a concept like that and, and, and run with it and then just what they're able to, to do with it. That may also be one that, that I take a look at, um, but I'll offer up my, my own wild card here, which is, No one to meet, imitation and originality in the songs of Bob Dylan. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and this is by Raphael Falco, and uh, I have not read anything by uh, Raphael Falco before, so this will be first venture into that. But um, folks who know me know that I am something of a um, an armchair rock historian. Uh, I like I like to read biographies of of bands and uh, individual musicians, and um, Dylan is somebody I've I've read about before. I have, I, I've read Dylan before because he is a a writer. In, in addition to being a, a songwriter, he writes
0: a, a Nobel Prize he's winning a Nobel writer. Prize winner.
1: That's <laughs> right. And he writes poetry. He writes biographical nonfiction type stuff. I have his Philosophy of Modern Song on the bedside ta- table right now, which I've read maybe a quarter of. I have to say, I find it very difficult to read <laughs> Bob himself when he he writes. I'm I'm, I'm not a big fan of his of his narrative voice, even though I'm a big fan of his, uh, his music. But reading about him is a different matter, so I'm, I'm looking forward to this. Um, I mean, he's just obviously such a, an iconic figure, and um, uh, the, the book seems to, it looks like it's sort of positioning him as uh, working in a, a similar way to how a Renaissance writer might have written and using this kind of art of imitation. To then make it into something completely new, so there's an aspect of innovation in here. To go back to Kim and Mulburn, uh, originally this, but this is you know innovation in the um, more artistic sense. You know, so I, I want to see sort of how he gets positioned in a l- bigger cultural tradition that goes way back, you know, into the Renaissance, and then obviously with somebody who's shaped our, our current culture so much. So I think that's just going to be an, an interesting aspect of this.
0: Well, I think it's interesting to me just in that title the subtitle imitation and originality in the songs of Bob Dylan I feel like he gets held up as this paradigm of originality and mm. like such this you know amazing kind of new voice So I like this idea of looking at you know what was he imitating what was he looking to from the past
1: yeah and I mean it's pretty well established that of course he was drawing on people like you know Woody Guthrie and the uh, and the folk tradition and, and that sort of thing but but certainly, he, he turned it into something really different. And my understanding, too, is this is more about sort of his later body of work, too, mm-hmm. not those, you know, blowing in the wind type stuff that would have been drawing on somebody like Guthrie. So I'm interested to see how that goes. And, you know, in terms of what I'm hoping to learn, it's uh, getting insight into tapping into other traditions, uh, which, again, is what I sort of understand this book to be uh, about. And then, um, of course, aside from being an amateur armchair uh, rock philosopher, um, historian. I am also a, a singer-songwriter, so I'm hoping I you know, pick up a, a tip or two from the, the maestro there on, on what I can do with uh, my own
0: songs. So book reviews, book reports, other kind of after-the-fact reflections on books, I feel like those are pretty common. We get a lot of those in, in our world and in our culture, but I really like this idea of giving some focus on the front end. You know how are we selecting books and what questions do we bring to reading a book or or what do we hope that we might get from that read and it seems like if you bring some of this pre-work to reading that might deepen the reading experience and the learning that comes from it Reading, particularly reading guided by active inquiry and genuine curiosity, is a great way to learn. What do you plan to read? We encourage you to give some thought to what you'll read in the weeks ahead, and we'd love to hear what's on your reading list.
1: At leadinglearning.com episode 362, you'll find show notes, a full transcript, and links to the books we referenced in this episode. And in the comments, you can let us know what's on your reading list.
0: On the Leading Learning site, you'll also find all kinds of good reading material from executive briefings to blog posts. There's a search option available on all the pages of the site, so you can use that to locate reading on a topic that interests you, or you can go to leadinglearning.com executive hyphen briefings to check out our most recent briefings.
1: We'd be grateful if you'd take a minute to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, especially if you enjoy the show. So Lisa and I personally appreciate reviews and ratings, and they help the podcast show up when people search for content on leading a learning business.
0: And please spread the word about leading learning. You can do that in a one-on-one note or conversation with a colleague, or you can do it through social media. In the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 362, you'll find links to connect with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook.
1: Thanks again, and see you next time on The Leading Learning podcast.